So my friend Matt grew up in church, like I did. It was a good Bible-believing, solid church. He learned all the basics. And then one day when he was uh, on his soccer team, he found out one of his best friends on the soccer team is actually uh, a Mormon. And in that, um, I don't know if you know, Mormons add to the scriptures and they don't actually believe in the Trinity. They have a different view of Jesus. They don't believe that he's fully God. And so he, he had to deal with the fact that he was really good friends, this guy that he really respected. And yet, when he went to church and read his Bible, he could only conclude that this person was not saved. And so he was left wondering, am I really supposed to accept the fact that this guy that I really like is not saved? My friend Amanda, she grew up in a cons very conservative church that had all the answers about how God created the universe. And she knew very clearly how dinosaurs fit into the picture and how had all the answers to all the basic questions about how God created and when he created everything, how a worldwide flood happened. And then she went off to college. She was a very, very bright student. Went off to college and when she learned about the God particle and learned about punctuated equilibrium in evolutionary theory. She went home with all these people that seemed like ignorant rednecks after she'd been off to college. Said, am I really supposed to trust them? Am I literally supposed to believe that the universe was created in six days? And she hasn't been at church for years. Another guy I know named Paul. Grew up in the country, went to a church that told him all of the answers. He could tell you how the dinosaurs fit in and, and how God created literally in seven days, how it's possible that an ark could contain all the animals that it needed to, how everything fit together, had all those answers. And then he went off to college and realized that many of the answers he had received weren't quite as clear as they'd been made out to be. And that's when I... Felt like people had lied to me. Felt like people were hiding the truth from me. And it was a very, very dark time wondering whether I could believe any of it. The question I want to ask today, or really, rather, Psalm 73 is going to force us to ask today, is what should people like Matt and Amanda, people like me, do with our doubts? You know, what are we supposed to do when those old answers that we've been given over and over again just don't seem to work? What do we do when the Bible doesn't feel true? Two answers to this question that I, I just want, I want, I want to put up there. Before we go to Psalm 73, we need to understand how most people deal with these doubts. How most people deal with this. The first is, is clearly that if you ask people on the street, what should I do with these doubts? They're going to tell you this. Nobody really knows the answers to these questions. Nobody can really know for sure who God is or who the historical Jesus really was or whether the universe was created or just some cosmic accident. Nobody really knows this stuff for sure. So you, you can keep going to church. They have a nice Christmas program. They have free coffee. It's a good place to go. It'll make you a good person. You should go to church. But you shouldn't, don't pretend like you know the answer to these questions. You don't know. Nobody knows. We call this agnostic, which literally means from Greek agnostic, without knowledge. 
that this person is so ruled by their doubts that the only thing they're sure of is they're sure that nobody knows. Today, agnosticism is by far the preferred view. It's easy to hold. It's not offensive. It's tolerant. And it's simply the least violent way to deny the authority of God. But at the end of the day, it's denying the authority of God. And let me remind you what Jesus says. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Luke 9.26 So at the end of the day, saying, well, I really wasn't sure that that's what you said. It doesn't matter. If you let your doubts rule you, it's not going to end well. That's what the whole world tells us right now, right? That's the only acceptable view in our world when it comes to these things. But if you come to the church, the church tries to overcompensate for this a lot of times. And they say, doubts? We don't talk about doubts. We don't have doubts. If you bring your doubts to us, what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to give you bullet points of five reasons why you shouldn't doubt. Shame on you. And then I'm going to, I'm going to read the scripture to you. And if you don't understand it, I'm going to read it more loudly to you. <laughs> like it's a matter of volume or something. And so we don't talk about doubts. But at the end of the day, this might work at keeping people from asking questions, but it does not grow people's faith. You know what that grows? That grows people who are really, really good at pretending like they have faith. It's really good at growing fakes, fake faith. And fake faith, my friends, will not save you. If we deny our doubts, we're in trouble. And if we give in to our doubts, we're damned. So ask again, what are we supposed to do with our doubts? If you have a Bible, I really would encourage you to look at this and mark this scripture. Psalm 73 is where we're going to be at today. It is it's beautiful. You're, you're going to want to know this one. Psalm 73. Before we jump into this, let me set up the context here. If you, if you actually open it up in your Bible, the problem is most of you are going to pull out your, your smartphone right now or you're just going to look at the screen. And when you do that, you miss the whole context that this is actually part of something bigger. So, so, so if you actually pull out a real Bible, not to say it's not the real Bible, but you know what I mean. But you get the context and you know what? You'll see a header right above Psalm 73. It says book three. So you know these psalms, these 150 psalms, thousands of years ago, there were rabbis and worship leaders, and they got together, and they took these psalms that they had sung for, for years, hundreds of years at that point, in the temple worship, and they put them together in a very particular order for a very particular reason. So Psalm 1 through 41 is book 1, Psalm 42 through 72 is book 2. Psalm 73 through 89 is book 3, etc., etc. So this is the starting point of a new book. And each book of the Psalms has its own distinct style and sound and voice. So in order to understand this Psalm, you need to understand that this is, this is, this is like changing the channel on the radio station. So, you know, if you turn to a country music station, you have certain expectations, very low, I hope. <laughs> and if you turn to, um, you know, another station, you have different expectations. If you're listening to Lady Gaga, you expect one thing. If you're listening to Josh Groban, you have something else. This is somewhere between Josh Groban and Lady Gaga. In book three, we're going to hear the voice of a guy named Asaph. 
Now, there's not a lot of sermons about Asaph. You don't hear a lot about Asaph. But Asaph is going to be really important. If you read the rest of the scriptures, especially First, uh, First Chronicles, you're going to see that Asaph, he's the founder of the temple choir. And it appears that if you read through that his music and his style is second only to David's as being the most influential throughout that time period. In his day, he, he was truly a rock star. And let me put this in perspective. He led worship for thousands and thousands of worshipers at the temple. This is, this is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a rock star in front of a stadium full of fans. He wrote music that was so good and so powerful that David actually wrote songs about how good worship was when he led. I mean, songs about songs. It's ridiculous. We're still singing his songs. His songs were so good that God said, I want my people to sing this forever. So, one of the greatest worship leaders of all time, he writes the first ten psalms in this book. And so in this, we're really going to get to hear his voice, his style. And if, if, you, if you were to take Asaph and put it on a Pandora channel, we should try that sometimes, see if that actually works. But if, if you could, his music would be soaring. It would be epic. I mean, I'm thinking like the soundtracks to the, with John Williams. Is that the guy who does all the soundtracks? I mean, it would be awesome. It's, it's soaring and epic and God is conquering other gods. He's the creator God. He's the most powerful being you've ever met. And we're allowed to enter into his presence and you bring out all, he's personal. You can bring your problems to him and yet he's soaring and high and lifted up. And he's a God of justice. This psalm, this first track on his hit album, is unlike anything else we've experienced in the psalms thus far. It's like he's there for his live performance and he walks up to the microphone. My name's Asaph. This song is about how I almost lost my faith. And that's how it starts. Surely God is good to Israel. He's good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm not sure I'm there. And I'm not always sure that I'm one of those people. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that this is that the image of following God is often the image of a precarious climb on a mountain path. So in Deuteronomy and Joshua and and throughout the Psalms, you see this language of climbing to follow God and how you could slip if you're not careful. And if you slip, that's what we call falling away from the faith. Slipping to your death. When um, when I was young and stupid, I, I was in Switzerland, Gimmelwald. Anyone go there near Interlaken? It's a great backpacker's place. It's where young people go to do crazy things and potentially die. I almost did. And so, so we go there, and one of the first days I'm with my friends, we go on this really, really cool mountain path. And I want to show you a picture of the path that we took. I did not take this picture. Too afraid for my life. But this is the image that Asaph has of what it means to follow God. 
that if you take one misstep, like you look down and you're just, you're dizzy. You're gripped with fear. And if you slip, you die. That's the story. I don't want you to miss this. Asaph, potentially the greatest worship leader and one of the just greatest musicians and songwriters of all time, is now standing before the stage of thousands of his fans. And he just said, let me tell you how I almost lost my faith. This is raw honesty. Asaph seems to think that God's people in the midst of worship need to hear how the greatest worship leader of all time struggles with doubt. God seems to think that here, right here, in this place, where people come together and worship, God's people need to hear how even worship leaders and pastors struggle with doubt. Church has to be a safe place to struggle. It's always been a requirement. Here's how Asaph almost lost his faith. He's going to spend verses 3 all the way through 11 describing it. It starts out like this. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now this doesn't sound like a big trouble to us. We're like, of course, there's bad people who make a lot of money out there. But for ancient Israelite, this is a huge, huge problem. If you read like the core of what life is all about for them, you read the Torah. At the end of Deuteronomy, you see that those who follow God are supposed to be blessed and the wicked are supposed to be cursed. So, so when, when you read through that, God, everything in God's word says that God says the way to the deepest, richest, best possible life is with him. That if you want to know what life is all about, to quote the Apostle Paul, if you want to know the life that is truly life, then you follow him. And he goes out, opens up his front door, walks out into the big, wide world and meets some of these wicked people. And here's what he saw. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. They have callous hearts. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind notice no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they... They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They mock God. They have all these followers. Let, let me explain this to you in English. Their life is really good. They look better than me. They're not stressed out. They're cocky for a reason. They never feel guilty. They say whatever they want and get no consequences. They seem to be in control of everything in their life. They have thousands and thousands of followers on Facebook and Twitter. And they laugh at the idea that God would ever judge anyone. You want to know what the accursed, the wicked people are like? And he's got this image in his mind. It's like he's expecting these people to be accursed. They're wicked. They should they should hate life. They should be crying all the time. And what does he see? He sees like this young couple pour up in a Porsche Cayenne. They hop out. Six pack. 
suntan designer glasses and they look good and they know it. Everything they do is all about themselves and it really works for them. They walk into a room and all the iPhones light up with hashtag I'm so jealous. <laughs> I mean, it's obscene. Everything they do, they're entirely self-centered, entirely full of pride, entirely about their independence. They think they control everything in their life. They think everything in the world is about them. And you know what? It works. It's working. Their life is better than mine. They get everything they want. So that's what it was like 2,500 years ago. Tell me. In the last 2,500 years, if you were to look out there, open up your front door, and go out in the big wide world and look for the wealthiest, most successful people, successful people in our world today, people who utterly mock God and the idea of God, do you think they would look like this? They seem to have no worries, no love handles, no money problems, no guilt. No fear. None of the junk that I deal with every week. And yet they seem blessed. So this is a major crisis. What do I do with that? He says, this is what the wicked are like. They are wonderful. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. It's awesome what they have. If you want to know what he's confident of at this point, the only thing that he's sure of is that in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. I've been living for God all this time and it's complete waste. My life is awful and it feels like God's punishing me and following God doesn't pay off. That's what I'm sure of. If you want to know what pays off, See the prior verses, selfishness, being self-obsessed, cheaters always win and winners always cheat. People who are better looking and stronger, it doesn't matter how godly they are, they get ahead in our world. And then at that very dark moment, when he comes to this conclusion though, there's one thing that's going to stop him from actually moving forward, from actually just completely leaving the faith. And I want you to see this, the turning point is here in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. This might not seem um, significant to you, but I want you to know that up to this point, Asaph has only looked at himself and only looked at the wicked. And this is the first point where he actually looks at other believers, the children of God. And when he takes himself out of his self-pity, and his self-loathing and woe is me and how much he wants their lives. And he looks around. He starts to realize something that doubts are much bigger when you're isolated. When you only look at your life and your problems and yourself, it's easy to convince yourself that God's not real and he's not at work. But when Asaph sees all of them, his doubts get caught in his throat. We're going to see from the next verses that he's actually seen crowds come for worship. Remember, he's a worship leader. And it's one thing for him to doubt that God's worked in his own life. But then, can he really doubt that God saved that couple? 
Can he really doubt that God changed her? Can he really doubt that God healed them? Can he really doubt that God has blessed their children? You know, it's one thing to be on your own and think, I'm just going to pursue wickedness. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be just like them so I can be successful and healthy and have everything they have. It's one thing to think that, but then it's an entirely different thing when you look at your children and say, do I want them to become like me? Do I want them to become wealthy and successful and suntanned and wicked? And it stops his doubts. It stops him from saying anything. Doubts are much bigger when you're isolated. You might be able to deny God's work in your life, but can you deny it in this room? Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. This is the turning point. This is the point. He doesn't go into any explanation. He just says, I showed up at worship. Everyone was there. And suddenly all the doubts that were coming up out of my mouth, they just got stopped. And then I went into worship and suddenly everything made sense to me. Before we unpack this, let me just make an observation. Oftentimes our doubts hide behind a rational framework. There are rational questions. There are questions that deserve an answer. You know, is there any historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Or is there reason to believe that humans are more than just a physical body? Is there any historical evidence that there was an ancient Israel and a King David? There are legitimate questions. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to pass over that. I don't want to deny that. We have free copies of this. Always. But we have them in particular on the table back here called More Than a Carpenter. I would encourage you to read it. It's just some of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is really the foundation of everything we believe. And, and I do think we need to deal with those. But may I suggest to you that the vast majority of our doubts, and I would say that our biggest doubts, have almost nothing to do with rational problems. In fact, I seriously doubt that people just hear a new piece of information that overturns everything they believe. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has an illustration that has since been updated by a guy named Tim Keller. And I, I just want to share this with you. There's there's a woman. And she meets this hunky guy. I mean, she, the guy she's been dreaming of her whole life. And this guy, he says, you know, you are just beautiful and nice and funny. Let's go on a date. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and while she's getting ready for the date over the next week or something, when they plan it for her, her friends start calling up. I hear you're going on a date with him. You know what he's like? He's a pig. Every time he gets together with a woman, he, he only he treats her like a queen for the first few weeks. And then as soon as she falls in love with him, he loses interest and dumps her. And then the next friend calls. You're going out with him? You know he's a pig. And then the next friend. You know he's a pig. He dumped me. And over and over again, 20 different friends individually come to her and say don't go out with him this is what he's going to do he's going to treat you like a queen for a while and then after a few weeks and once he thinks you're falling in love with him he's going to dump you and she says wow i should be afraid until she goes out on the date and that date is so magical they go out she looks in his eyes he touches her wrist just so 
I mean, they eat, he orders just the right food and he remembers her favorite colors. And she says, no, 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 they were all wrong. This, this is different. This is special. He really loves me. He would never do that to me. Now, why? C.S. Lewis asks, does she doubt? Is it some new piece of information? No, this is exactly what everyone, all 20 of her friends, faithful friends that she should trust, this is exactly what they said would happen. So why does she doubt? Because the message of the friends is on audio, and the message of the hunk is on video. <laughs> what she knows in her mind to be true does not feel true. And that's how doubts, may I suggest to you, at least our greatest doubts are usually born. Where did Asaph's doubts come from? It wasn't some new bit of information that said God is false. It's when he went out and he experienced the wicked. He hung out with unbelievers and it felt pretty wonderful. May I suggest to you that our doubts probably have more to do with how we feel than how we think. Maybe someone hurt you deeply and you can't trust anyone, not even God. Maybe God didn't come through for you when you felt like you needed him most. Maybe your friends aren't Christians and they're pretty wonderful. For Asaph, it wasn't that he needed answers to his rational questions, though at times we need these. It was that he had to feel the love and the power and the majesty of God again. He had lost that. What does Asaph need? What's his turning point? He has to go to worship and he has to hear the word of God. He has to hear the choir singing. He has to see the crowds worshiping God. He has to see people that God's worked in their lives and he has to, he has to smell the sacrifice burning and he has to taste it. To know that God has actually provided a way that he can come into his presence. And when he does that, all of his questions seem to fall away. Now, isn't this interesting? You know, when God wants to give us a prayer to lead us through our doubts, isn't it interesting that he doesn't take us to like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, evidences for the resurrection of Christ. And he doesn't give us all these proofs that God actually did create the world. Instead, he speaks to our hearts. He talks about a heart experience, sitting in the majestic presence of God. In Hebrew, the word for heart means all of your inner person. So it means more like in English, when we refer to our heart, we usually refer to just emotions. But in Hebrew, it refers to emotions and thoughts and struggles and feels, all that's within you. The word heart occurs in this psalm six different times. We see at the beginning that his heart is isolated from other believers. And then, and then just a couple verses later, it's seduced by these wicked people that he envies them. And then it's racked with doubts. And then it grieves. And finally, it's going to fail. And then it's going to be strengthened. That when God wants to reach and answer his greatest doubts, he doesn't speak to his head, but he speaks to his heart. Let me read a couple more verses to you. 
After this moment, he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. That when he stands before a majestic God, he realizes that God truly is the judge of all the universe. And that at the end of the day, it won't be him standing on a cliff, but it will be them standing before a holy God. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved, and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I was thinking like an animal, as if my soul didn't matter, as if eternity didn't matter. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. And then after traveling through all of his doubts, check this out. Whom have I in heaven but you? And after I've looked over the wicked and all that they have, earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail me and they feel like they are. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. He started off the psalm, as for me, I'm not even sure if I'm a believer anymore. But after he moves through his doubts, he says, as for me, there's no place I'd rather be than worshiping my God. Without the doubts, Asaph might never have gotten to this place. Just as God uses our hardships, we saw a few weeks ago, and our hatred, we saw last week, as God uses those things to draw us along, to actually strengthen our faith, to give us a new love for him, give us greater healing and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation and send us out on mission. God actually uses our doubts to strengthen our faith. Now, let me be clear. Uh, I do not just because we want to be a safe place to struggle. I do not celebrate doubts. I don't encourage unbelief. I mean, I really wish to God that all of us were one of those people that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One of those people who has the gift of faith. Do you know what those people are like? In a room of this size, there's probably two, maybe three. Are those people that once they put their faith in Christ, they never again question anything God said ever, ever, ever. And it's it's beautiful when you meet those people. I love to spend time with those people. It's so encouraging. But then there's the rest of us. The rest of us where, you know, a, a, a disembodied hand could come up and write on the wall, this is a message from God, and all of us would be like, I don't know. <laughs> I saw something like this on Mythbusters once. I don't, I don't know. Like, we, we, just, we don't want to believe. We don't want to believe. No matter how much evidence there is, in our mind or to our hearts. We don't want to believe. I don't celebrate doubt. But I'm personally convinced that God uses our doubts to grow us. This is one of my favorite little quotes. It's um, Francis Bacon, English philosopher, scientist, smart guy, 1600s. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. And I just want to tell you that is absolutely true in my experience. 
that when we bring our greatest doubts and questions to God, He uses that just as He did for Asaph to bring him from this point where he thought he had faith to this point where he can say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire more. Personally, I grew up in a church where I had all the answers. We began with certainties. And then when I went to college, I realized that those certainties weren't quite as certain as I thought. And so I went through this horrible time in, in seminary and just before seminary where I questioned everything and I made people really, really uncomfortable. Like, how is it supposed to work that Jesus died for me? What does that even mean? And how do you know that Jesus was actually God? And who, who decided to put all these books together? How do you know this is from God and not some other book? And why a book? Would God really write a book? And how do I know that God actually sends people to hell? Can you even believe that? And I asked those questions and I, I went through a very difficult time where there was about a year of my life when I could hardly sleep. I struggled with these so deeply. And yet, have you ever, um, ever gone to one of those like renaissance fairs and you see the, the big blacksmith and he takes the piece of metal Sticks it in the fire till it's red hot. And then what does he do? He beats the tar out of it. And that's what my struggles were like. It was like you, you take it. He makes it. God made it malleable by putting all these questions that just heated up my faith. And then he beat the tar out of me. But when he brought it out, my faith was a different shape to be sure. But the parts that he had beaten the most were now so strong that they were unbreakable. My prayer is that we will be a church that is a safe place to struggle. That we can beat the tar out of each other. So that we can come to a point to know not just up here, but in here, that God is real. That His word is true. That there's nothing in heaven or on earth that's better than Him. But you don't come to that point from just reading books. You have to meet Him. Pray with me.